one of the things that you know perhaps surprised me most when I arrived here was the lack of really significant service user and carer involvement in developing services, in delivering services, and in evaluating services. And that's something we've done a vast amount of work done over in the last nine months. Just over a year ago, an assessment of the adult mental health service in Jersey gave a damning verdict that overall it was not safe and there was a high risk of serious incidents. It found evidence of a lack of leadership, a lack of systems and policies, a lack of learning from mistakes, a lack of working together. In short, the service was seriously lacking. Off the back of that, a registered mental health nurse with two decades of leadership experience was appointed to lead Jersey's mental health and adult social care. Andy Weir has been in post since January and has just been made the permanent director of adult mental health in Jersey. He joins me now to share how he's turning around a service that was itself in very poor health. Andy, just over a, a year ago, we had a report published which had been commissioned by Health looking at adult mental health services in Jersey. And I think many people would agree, not least the minister at the time, that it was pretty damning in its findings. We've now had the full report being published under FOI quite recently. And I can just quote from it. The service overall is not safe. Not being safe does not mean that every patient treated in the service received or receives an unsafe service. Instead, it means that the service has a high risk of serious incidents. Any remedial action in accordance with the recommendations and good practice taken by the executive team will reduce this risk. As I say, that was fairly unequivocal. Is the service now still unsafe? No, I don't think it is. I, I wouldn't profess that everything is perfect within the service or that we've achieved all of the things that we need to achieve. But today, I'm far more confident and can provide evidence and assurance that the delivery of care for people with, who require adult mental health services is safe and is significantly improved from a year ago. Tell me about what you found when you came in and how bad were things? So I think you know, I'd seen the report prior to taking up post in January, the, 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 development, the d development of my post as a, as a new executive director for, with responsibility for mental health services um, came as a result of the report. Um, so, so I had a pretty good idea um, what, what the key issues were going to be. I think the report was accurate. Essentially, the report talks about three things, I think. It, ta it talks about systems and processes. So, you know, how how care is delivered, the processes that are in place to make sure that care is safe, the processes that are in place to make sure that we know when things aren't working well or indeed where they are working well, um, and things like policies, procedures, those, those types of things, and, and you know, gaps in those. It, it talks about care delivery in as much as it describes at that point quite significant gaps in a whole system of mental health care. So, you know, the, the, the reviewers who I've spoken to um, recognise that there are some really good services and there are some services that were less good, but what we didn't have is a whole single system of mental health services that made sense and that meant that people didn't fall through gaps. I think a, a good example of that is that when I arrived, there were, was quite a significant waiting time for an initial assessment from community mental health services, and some people had waited up to four months to be seen. But, you know, that, that's a significant issue for people that have, have, have acute mental health need. So we did a very early piece of work thinking about how do we change those processes, and, and thankfully our review of that in, in September of October this year identified that actually no one was waiting for a community mental health assessment for longer than two weeks. So that's a, a really significant improvement. 
The, the last and, and, and you know, equally significant thing that the report talks about is around leadership um, and clearly raised some concerns about leadership structures, leadership practice, management processes within mental health services. Um, so, so one of the things that, that I did when I first got here um, was totally redesign the leadership team for mental health services so that people were clear about their roles, accountabilities were clear, and also things were doable. Um, I, I found a, a leadership team that were very stretched um, who, you know, had... There were, uh, when I arrived, 280 outstanding action plans for mental health services. Uh, you know, I come from a job in, in the UK where I have nine senior managers working for me. They wouldn't have delivered those actions in the timeframes that have been identified, so it was never going to happen here. So I think false expectation had been set around what, what could and would happen in developing services over time. Um, so we had to prioritise, and that's tricky because it does mean that sometimes you have to say, no, we're not going to do that, we can't do everything at once, but we've, I think we're now in a place where we're very honest about this is what we're doing, this is the time frame that we'll do it in, and then the, this is how we'll know whether it's made a difference or not. And I'm just wondering, where you, you said you mentioned some of the early action plans. Rolling right back, is there a reason or reasons why that when um, the, the report authors went in last year, they, they found so many things that weren't going right was it was it cultural was it demand was it too much demand uh put on too few people providing those services was there any were there were there any clear reasons why it had been allowed to get this that bad i think the report gives you the answer i think the, the report talks about not a whole coherent clear system and pathways so how mental health services work together it talks about not effective multidisciplinary working so lots of silos and some places where you would expect to see multidisciplinary teams of people working cohesively together that not being the case for, for a variety of reasons and some of that is about how the how the services were designed at that time um, I think it also talks about you know at, at that point a lack of leadership and management oversight to make sure that the, the services were doing what they needed to be doing um, so I'm sure that a lot of that if, if has evolved over time Covid won't have helped that. The mental health services here, as with everywhere else, had to really significantly reorganise themselves very quickly during Covid. The way that people worked changed dramatically. You know, the availability of staff changed dramatically. So, so that that will have not made the situation any better, frankly. Um, but I think that the the absence of overall single strategic leadership and vision setting and direction setting and monitoring. Is, is a significant factor in that, hence the decision by HCS to create a, an executive director job with specific focus. And, and was that at the time, and we'll move on to the change in just a second, was that, was that at the time having an impact on the, the, the key thing, which is patient outcomes? Yes, without a doubt. Um, so so the, the report talks about the fact that if, if your systems and processes aren't clear, if your structures aren't clear, if you can't clearly articulate in a service what is it that we're here to do, how do we do it and how do you know what the outcome should be, of course that's going to impact on people that are receiving that service. And I think one of the things that you know, perhaps surprised me most when I arrived here was the lack of really significant service user and carer involvement in developing services, in delivering services, and in evaluating services. And that's something we've done a vast amount of work done over in the last nine months. Um, but that, you know, th that was stark to me, that, that actually we weren't hearing directly from people who use services and their carers in a productive, proactive 
way that you know we were hearing lots of concerns you know cle clearly people use things like the complaint system but the processes where you really utilize the strength of people with with mental health needs to contribute to the delivery of mental health services just weren't there so let's break it down so you said early on you you devised a, a new leadership team you put a new structure in place yeah. how significant was that in to achieving the overall aims really significant People needed to know, people in leadership roles needed to understand what their roles were, what they were accountable for, how they were expected to work together. And then they needed to work together in a way that was coherent and made sense because that then gets reflected into services. So if you've got a leadership team that's siloed, then the services will be siloed. Of course they will. But it wasn't just about being clear about people's roles. And there are some very talented people in that team and who needed to be clear about their roles and the expectations um, and that's allowed them then to significantly develop the things that they were doing. Um, but it was also about how the leadership team worked. So it was putting a rhythm and a structure and a process in place so that we now each, we, we meet each week um, and we each, each week look at an agreed item. So one month we're looking at performance and, and finance, one, one week one week we look at performance and finance, one week we're looking at clinical outcomes and safety and risk, one week we're looking at workforce and workforce development, and then one week we're looking at... Um, service development and then the, it all starts again the following month use of data was so important you know we, we have done a large amount of work on producing data that shows us what we're doing so how many people we're seeing how long they're waiting what we're doing with them when we've got them where they're going to next all of that stuff there were quite significant gaps in that i've been very lucky to have a, a very skilled data analyst who works alongside us in the leadership team to to make sure that we've got the the data that we need to understand what services are doing and that links back to your first question about so how do we know it's safe because we now know we know what we're doing with people how long they're waiting etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and when it comes, presumably a lot of people you're working with were, were, were working under the, the, the ancien regime as well, if I can put it like that. Um, how difficult was it to carry them through? Because presumably this was, a, this was a cultural thing as much as it was individual processes and reporting and, and, and models, as you've mentioned. So one of the things that's been really nice about the role is that actually the vast majority of people that work in mental health services wanted change. They wanted things to be different. They recognised that there were, there were things that weren't working really well. The report talks about a, a lack of clear communication with staff, and that was certainly true. There's no doubt about that. I, you know, I, I found a group of staff, many of whom felt a bit disenfranchised, a bit damaged. They were continuously criticised, they perceived. People didn't recognise the good work that they were doing. Um, so, so consequently, we had to do a fair bit of work at the beginning about setting up formal communication structures. So, for example, every four to six weeks now, we have an open forum. Any member of staff can come along. Um, we present information, we talk about things that have gone on, we ask questions. Where we've redesigned services, so we've done a, a huge piece of work redesigning community mental health services, which was one of the, the recommendations from the review, lots and lots of staff have been involved. We've had workshops of up to 80, 100 staff attending. We've had programmes of work where staff have directly contributed to shaping how the new service models look, etc. So getting staff involved hearing them and learning from their experience of working in the services has been absolutely crucial to, to the work we've been doing. Sometimes um, the word policy can be seen negatively as, as a kind of bu bureaucratic word. I suppose when they don't exist, then it can be equally bad. Tell me about practically how some of the policies that you've implemented have improved both patients and, and staff, their, their lives, their outcomes. 
So I'll, I'll give a, a, a very specific example, because I think you're right. We don't want clinical staff particularly to feel that policies are absolutely directing what they must do for every minute of the day and that there's no room for manoeuvre and, and innovation and development of course we don't want that but people do need boundaries they do need some kind of framework to work within and there does need to be an understanding of what people are expected to do on a day-to-day -day basis and how to do it safely and, and particularly where policies are driven by um, things like good research evidence good outcome based evidence that you know that that, that so for example we um, follow people up on discharge from hospital within 72 hours of them leaving mental health services. There's a really good reason for that. We know from the National Confidential Inquiry into Suicides that the vast majority of people that kill themselves when they leave hospital kill themselves within 72 hours. So that's a policy that's there for a very good clinical reason. We don't want people to say, well, I'm not going to follow them up for a fortnight. I'll wait. To do, you know, we want them to do the stuff that we know might, might impact. The... The, the most obvious, the policy that's most referenced in the external review is around how people's care is delivered, which is called care coordination, or in the UK it's called the care programme approach, and that's been in place in the UK since the 1990s, and essentially says that everybody that receives secondary mental health care should have a named key worker, a care plan, a risk assessment, a crisis plan, and when they've got carers involved, the carers should be involved in the assessment and delivery of care. That's never been introduced in Jersey. It's a basic framework for delivering safe mental health care. We've done that now. It's taken some time, we've done it with staff, but we now have, we've not used the UK model, we've, we've developed our own model, which is akin to that, which is called the CARF, the Care and Recovery Framework. Um, but actually, people now in receipt of our care should expect to have those things and we can monitor it, we can audit it, so we know whether we're doing that or not. So this is about basic frameworks of care, but it means that we know people are treated consistently and safely. Two things that were in the, the report last year, which really were mentioned a number of times um, as well, was this whole idea of multidisciplinary teams and, and the absence of. And the other thing was there was concern that um, about lessons learned and the absence of frameworks to learn from mistakes. Is those, are those two areas that you've addressed as well? Certainly. So multidisciplinary teams is interesting because there is, you know, there is some good, there was some good multidisciplinary work occurring, there's no doubt about that. But the way that some of the teams were structured actually didn't support effective multidisciplinary working. The report talks about professional silos, and I think that was absolutely true. So for example, you know, we have a community mental health team, but we have the social workers sitting in a separate team. We have psychologists sitting in a separate team and the nurses and doctors and occupational therapists that work in that team will refer to the psychology team. Whereas if you've got a multidisciplinary assessment, then actually people are working together every day. Not all of this referral, passing people from one team to another. So we've had to restructure our services slightly to try and promote and make sure that multidisciplinary team working is, is, is a key to the, to the work that we're doing. So that's the first thing. Um, Learning from incidents, learning lessons in, in mental health services is so frequently a, you know, a significant issue. We've done a lot of work on that. We have reviewed all of the outstanding actions and action plans, so we're really clear what the themes are, what the key actions are. We've taken priority actions in relation to that. And as you heard earlier, we talk every month now about any new incidents, any learning from that. We produce and present to staff and talk with staff about learning from incidents in the way that we, that we weren't doing before. We still haven't got it entirely right. There's still outstanding work um, and there's more progress to be made, but I think that's you know, true for most stuff, isn't it? We continuously develop and improve, hopefully. The, the second 
pillar that you mentioned was um, after a, um, reporting and, and processes was models of care. Could you just explain a little bit more about that? And again, it, try and drill down into a little bit of the practical detail about what a, what a different model of care might look like. Certainly. So, so essentially, this is about how we organise and deliver services, what we do in services. So if someone comes into a service, what are we going to offer them? You know, what's the stuff that we know is going to make a difference or not? And how do those teams then work together to create a whole system, a whole model where you know, people don't fall down cracks, services are working with each other, we haven't got gaps, all, all of that stuff. So we have, we, that was a priority for us. One of the priorities was to make sure that we made access much clearer. So at one point there were 14 or 15 ways to get into mental health services and service users and carers said to us really clearly, this isn't clear. You know, it's sometimes we don't know how to get in, sometimes we're moved from one place to another, we're told it's not us, it's somewhere else, and then they say it's not us. And, um, and sometimes we think we're referred and nothing happens for a while and we don't know. You know. So, so that, that we can't have that. Um, so we have entirely redesigned our community mental health services. We have, from this month, um, implemented a new crisis and assessment team. So all referrals, with the exception of if you're admitted into the general hospital and then you have a mental health problem, all other referrals come in through that front door, come in through that team. And that team do the assessment, they decide how urgent it is. If necessary, if it's a crisis, they'll come and see you within four hours. Um, and then they determine where in the mental health system you go to. We've been much clearer about what is secondary mental health care? And this is one of the challenges. So one of the things that surprised me when I got here was some of the work that was coming to mental health services here just wouldn't anywhere else. It would be looked after elsewhere in primary care. So, for example, you know, someone's a bit depressed um, in relation to their social circumstances. But we want the mental health services to see them. Well, there are lots of other things you can do before you get to mental health services in those circumstances. So we've developed a new team that deals with that, so a brief intervention team essentially that will provide up to six sessions of support for people who, for example, are having trouble sleeping. And, you, know, you don't need to come into mental health services with that, we can do it in a different way. And then we've got some specialised services, things like perinatal services, which are the care of women who are either pregnant or have had a child and have developed a mental health model. Um, offender care services, so for people who are in contact with the criminal justice system, so how we work with the prison service and the courts and that, you know, that, that type of stuff. Um, so we have redesigned over months um, our, our community model so that it is coherent, it's clear about what each team does, what you can expect from the team, what you should expect to get from them, and, and where you go next once you've finished with them. Presumably you haven't had to rip up everything. What, what, what examples of, of good practice have you encountered in Jersey? So there's some really good practice here. So the, the alcohol and drug services are really good, I think. There was some really good practice in, in some of our community services, actually. Um, and there are, as the report identifies, some really highly skilled clinicians that work in these services. So if, even though despite the systems, despite the, the structure of the services prior to, to January of this year, there were still people delivering good care. Um, and that's the stuff that we need to build on. We need to build on what's working well and where, because what we've not done quite deliberately, or what I've not done quite deliberately, is just lifted NHS mental health service models and said, this is what we're going to do here, because it won't work for a whole variety of reasons. It won't work. Good practice is still good practice. Research-based intervention is still research-based intervention, but actually we have to find a way of developing a mental health model that will work in the Jersey context. But there is some really good stuff that was in place long before I got here that we're building on and, and developing. What's next on the journey? Where, where, where are you heading? 
Okay, so there are two next two big pieces of work that we're going to do next. The first one is that we are going to now redesign inpatient services. So we're going to have a look at the three wards, the three mental health wards at St Saviour's Hospital, and have a look at what do we do there, what are the pathways, the staff group that work there in terms of if we've got the right skill mix, and how can we improve the experience of inpatient mental health care for people. So that's the first one, and that's a biggie. That will quite nicely coincide with the move of the services to Clinique Pinnell. And which, as, as you know, has been has been on the cards for a while, and it's going to happen. We hope in March of next year, and that will provide us with a much better clinical environment to provide to provide inpatient care. The other big piece of work that we're about to undertake is a review of rehabilitation services, particularly for people who have severe and enduring mental illness. So one of the things that I found when I first got here was that there was quite a lot of focus here on mental well-being and on people who needed low-level mental health support, particularly in relation to COVID and changes that had occurred during, during that period. But there wasn't adequate focus on people with serious, severe and enduring mental illness, so people with schizophrenia, bipolar, affective disorder, those types of things. Sometimes those people have not received a high quality of care and have been a bit left behind, frankly. So we're now particularly focusing on that group of folk. That An early win... Um, was that there was really, really good evidence that people with long-term mental health needs often experience significant physical health problems or you know, are frankly more likely to die 16 years earlier than the average population. So we have already introduced a new physical health team to make sure that we're doing physical health checks for those people, that we're supporting them to access physical health services when need be, because we need not just to be thinking about someone's mental health, we need to be thinking about their, their whole being, really. It fits into the wider question of in healthcare, in all forms of healthcare, and I'm sure in mental health care as well, prevention is better than cure. What role do you have in making sure that people don't reach a serious stage? So I, I work closely with public health colleagues. We have a, a, um, a new system strategic partnership board for mental health which is where we bring together all key partners in the delivery of mental health services and we think about what are our strategic priorities where do we want to put the resource where should the money be allocated service users and carers are key players at that table thankfully um, but I jointly chair that group with Peter Bradley the director of public health and the reason for that is we need to be doing both we need to be making sure that we're focusing on prevention and the things that we know that can significantly affect people's mental health and reduce the likelihood of mental illness later um, but at the same time we need to be focusing on the service delivery the care and treatment of people that do develop mental health issues so actually I have a role in that, but clearly my priority piece is about the delivery of services and making sure that our, our whole mental health system makes sense. You, you've come from the, the UK, Andy. Do you think that Jersey has any specific mental health issues that may be particular to the island or a, an island community? So I've not seen anything that's that's that I've not seen anywhere else. So, so in terms of you know mental health presentation, there are clearly some very specific issues around island communities and living on, a, on an island. Um, and certainly, I think sometimes, if I were frank, I think that, you know, that there is still quite a bit of stigma here. The piece of, of work that was recently done by one of our charitable sector organisations um, focused on mental illness. They, you know, they, the experience of people with mental health needs here in Jersey is that they still feel very significantly stigmatised. Um, so I think there's a, a particular piece of work that we need to do in Jersey, which is around the reducing stigma associated with particularly 
serious mental illness rather than mental health and well-being is is demand on your service increasing and and if it is why it is in line with almost anywhere else i think demand particularly for psychological support um, is increasing so you know so we've seen a really significant increase in demand for our lower level mental health services um things like the the the, the listening lounge talking therapies you know the the referrals to talking therapies have gone up and up and up um that's true everywhere so in the system that I came from, you know, demand for psychological therapy and waiting times has just got worse and worse and worse over the last two years. Um, I think everybody expected this post-COVID. I think the other thing that inevitably is going to inf- impact upon our service demand is is the cost of living challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know that that when that when the cost of living becomes complicated, and we know in in recession demand on mental health services increases suicide increases da, da, da. so we you know we have seen as i think I've, i spoke previously about we've, we've seen people being referred into our services who talk to us about don't know if i can feed my children clearly if they've got a mental health problem that's not going to make it any better and um, so those types of challenges i think have, have, have attributed to an increase in demand for mental health services and and, and with talk of, of of an imminent recession then it sounds as though the changes that you've brought in couldn't come around soon enough yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, the, the, the report, going back to where we started, the report says, doesn't it, that, that when any changes that we introduce that make our systems and processes and our services more coherent, that will reduce the risk. It will reduce the risk of incidents. It makes it safer. And I think this is a good time for us to be really focusing on what, what do we do and how do we do it. Unfortunately, it, it, the, the stats I remember reading is that one, one in four of us will, will have a, some form of mental health crisis in, in, in our lifetime. Is someone who potentially is going to have a crisis, are, are having a crisis, would you say they are 12 months on from the r- report um, being published, that they are in safer hands than they were before? Without a doubt, yeah. I think, and the, the reason that I say that is because we've now got a really clear crisis pathway. So actually, if you if you are in mental health crisis, it's very easy now to know how you get in, and you're going to be seen in an agreed period of time based upon the presentation and and you know what's going on and the perceived risk in relation to that, um, and it's going to be much clearer about what's going to happen next. So you know, I think certainly that one of the things that, that the mental health services here did in COVID was they introduced a more rapid response type approach to the work, and that was great. And we've just built on that, but we've built on it to make it clearer and particularly those access targets so making sure that people are seen within four hours face to face when that's what, what needs to happen that that's the thing that, that we need to focus on and and does that ultimately lead to more people getting better well you would certainly hope so it would certainly it certainly hopefully leads to people accessing treatment more quickly it, it would hope that you would people would access services more more quickly and that the range of services that they're offering will be greater and wider and and therefore will have better outcomes but you know in line with lots of mental health services everywhere one of the places that we've still got more work to do is on demonstrating outcomes and the outcomes of the interventions that we provide Almost getting there, and I was just going to ask actually about the the, the, the pausing of the, the Jersey Care model, which we all know was a, was an effort to put care in the community. Has that been um, has that suspension caused any problems? 
No, because because thankfully the model of mental health care delivery for quite some time has been very much about community-based care. You know, where possible, we don't admit people into hospital anymore. We have a home treatment team, which um, if we ca- if we need to, we can see people at home two or three times a day. So there's an op- a, an opportunity to treat people in their own home, whereas a few years ago we might have had to bring them into hospital to give them medicine twice a day, for example. We, we, we don't do that now. So so thankfully the models of mental health care had moved on quite some time ago so our our community focus the vast majority of people that we work with won't ever come near a hospital bed we will look after them and provide their care in community settings in their own home wherever we can we had a couple of um, visiting professionals came last year and carried out this report how are you going to know that you're doing a good job are we going to get a review um is is there any inspection or is there any is there any oversight just to make sure that we are indeed on the right path? Yeah, so we, so I have to report, you know, one of the good governance things is I have to report on a very regular basis into the HCS structure and to others against the recommendations of the report to say, look, this is where we are. And that's, you know, that's not just me saying, yes, it's all going okay. That's me needing to demonstrate this is what we've done. These are the new models. These are the, this is the data that supports us. So how do we know that we're getting there? I think there's a number of ways. The first is by keeping track of the plan. Um, and saying, you know, have we done what we said we we're going to do and how can we prove that? But that's not the end of the story, is it? It's then. So how do we then know whether that's worked? Has it made a difference or not? I think that we get that information from people who use our services, from carers, from our staff, from our partner agencies particularly. The strategic board um, has, a, has a clear role in determining, you know, are things getting better? Are we going in the right direction? And what do we need to do next? Um, we have on, on the ministerial plan the development of a new mental health strategy that that will help us again in terms of being really clear our, our current uh, mental health strategy has run out so that's going to be revived this year and that, that will be very much service user and carer led I think um, but it will help us again talk about what do we focus on um, and of course in due course we will have the introduction of a regulatory framework with the Jersey Care Commission um, and so they will very clearly have a role in saying are mental health services doing what they should be doing or not to the standards that they should be doing them so I think there's loads and loads of ways that we can get that that feedback consistently and we need to be open and transparent about that because sometimes we won't get it right and we haven't changed everything overnight there's still a lot of work to be done but we also need to be able to clearly demonstrate and celebrate where we're making a difference for the positive. Lastly, Andy, obviously you've been over a year now, you've just been made permanent, enjoying life in Jersey, and are you optimistic for the future? I really am, so I really like Jersey. If you'd have asked me when I arrived in January, would I stay... I would have said absolutely not. My intent was to come for a year um, and then go back because I have a, a good job that I very much enjoy in the NHS. I had a good job that I very much enjoy in the NHS. Um, but actually, there's something quite compelling about Jersey. And that's not just about the, the, the nice environment, the nice quality of life, the sense of community. It's not just that. Um, I think the potential here is huge for mental health services because it's a single system. It's a relatively small system. There are challenges with that, but actually the opportunity, there are lots and lots of really skilled, enthusiastic partner agencies that work around statutory mental health services. There are lots of people who use our services and their carers who really want to make a difference. So if we can galvanise that and we can order it and we can make sense of it, I think the potential to really deliver excellent mental health services is, is huge. 
Thanks to Andy Weir for talking with me today. And thank you for listening to the Bailiwick podcast. You can find the podcast on all the usual pod places. And don't forget to like and share. The music in the beginning and end of this podcast is I Shift My Weight by Luno. Tune in next week for more. <laughs>